Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today's episode is called Anatomy of a Good Yarn. Because the past few months, I've found myself drawn to tales that somehow include anatomy, starting with a charming novel titled Little by Edward Carey, the warm, wry, unforgettable tale of an ambitious orphan in revolutionary Paris, befriended by royalty and radicals, who transforms herself into the legendary Madame Tussaud. It's a beautiful little book. Um, Mr. Carey is actually predominantly a children's author, but this is his first novel for adults, and it was lovely. So I'd like to start with an excerpt from that, and then we will continue on our journey of anatomy. Dr. Curtius opened a door off the hall, and we stepped into a small passageway. At the end of it was another door, a little light glowing from underneath. This was surely where the doctor had been where I not- when I knocked. This room, said Curtius, is where I work. Curtius stopped in front of it, the great length of his narrow back toward us. He paused, straightened himself as much as he could, then spoke slowly and precisely. Please to come in. Ten or more shielded candles were burning inside the room, illuminating it wonderfully, showing us a place so cluttered it was impossible to understand at first. Long shelves were filled with corked bottles, inside them colors in powder. Other shorter shelves contained different, thicker bottles. These had more persuasive glass stoppers, hinting at the possibly fatal personality of the viscous liquids they contained, black or brown or transparent. There were boxes filled with hair. It looked like, wasn't it, human hair? Positioned across the length of a trestle table were various copper vats and several hundred small modeling tools, some with sharp tips, others curved, some minute, no larger than a pin, others the size of a butcher's cleaver. On the center of the table, upon a wooden board, was a pale, drying-out object. It was difficult to identify this object precisely at first. A piece of meat? The breast of a chicken, perhaps. But that wasn't it, and yet there was something so familiar about it, something everyday about it. It was a something, and the name of that something was on the tip of my tongue, and that, what a jolt, was it. It was a tongue, very like a human one upon a trestle table, and I wondered, if it was indeed a tongue, how did it get here and where was the someone who'd lost it? There were other things besides tongues in this room. The most impressive part of of the atelier I saw now was to be found in rosewood display cases, their clearly labeled shelves running up and down, left and right, till they covered most of one wall. Among the labels, inscribed in sepia by a fine calligraphic hand, were a host of words, ossa, neurocranium, columnae vertebralis, articulatio sternoclaviculiaris, musculus temporalis, bulbus oculi, nervus vagus, organa genitalia. Near the tongue on that table was one more sign, this, reading lingua. I was beginning to understand. Body parts, a room filled with them. There I was, a little girl, 
looking at all the parts of the body. We were being introduced. Bits and pieces of the human body, this is a little girl called Marie. Little girl called Marie, this is the body in pieces. I hovered behind Mother, still grasping her dress, but peered out at the spectacle. Curtius spoke now. You're a genital tract, with dangling bladder. Bones, from the femur, the strongest and largest, to the lacrimal, the tiniest and most fragile of the face. He was surveying the contents of his room. Many muscles, too, all labeled. Ten groupings of the head, from frontalis to the pterygoidus internus. Many of the ribbons of arteries from the superior thyroid to the common carotid. Veins, too. The cerebellar, the interior saphenous, the splenic and the gastric, the cardiac and the pulmonary. I have organs, individually resting on a bed of red velvet, or displayed with their neighbors on the wooden boards. The impressive intricacy of the ear's osseous labyrinth, or the long, thick clouds of intestines, both the small and large, such long and winding ways. Mother was regarding the room, looking increasingly unwell. Curtius must have noticed her horror, for he continued now very hurriedly. I, I made them. I made them. My osseous labyrinth and my gallbladder and my ventricles, I made them. They are models only, that is, replicas. I didn't mean... I'm not used... I do apologize. What can you think of me? Don't think them real. They look real, of course. Don't they look real? You must say yes. You know you must say yes. Oh, yes, very real, but they're not. No, though they do look it. Yes, because in fact, you see, I made them. The book itself is utterly charming, and Dr. Curtius is quite an interesting character. There's a chapter about him uh, taking some of his anatomical models around to show people, um, and and the reactions from people are kind of why he is so awkward and not very gifted in conversing with other human beings. So I read that book, and then I indulged myself in a Wendy Moore biography uh, called The Knife Man, which I'd like to tell you about now. This is a review by P.D. Smith called The Cutting Edge. In October 1785, John Burley went to St. George's Hospital in London to have a benign tumor on the side of his face removed. It was fortunate that he was seen by John Hunter. No other surgeon would have dared to operate on him. The tumor had grown to twice the size of the man's head and weighed nine pounds. After a 25-minute operation, Burley walked out of the hospital with nothing more than a long, neat scar on his face. Burley was 37 years old, the average life expectancy of a person in Georgian England. Physicians and surgeons would bleed, blister, and purge their patients to early graves. Surgical techniques had changed little since medieval times, and operations were endured without anesthetics. Hospital beds had handcuffs to restrain agonized patients. If you were lucky, you were given laudanum, a heady mix of alcohol and opium. Otherwise, it was a case of scream and bear it. Surgeons had no idea about infection, and between operations they saw no reason to wash their hands or even their instruments, which were usually encrusted with blood and pus. Uh, 
If you didn't die from loss of blood as the surgeons sliced and sawed, then you would probably die from infection. Hunter brought the rigors of scientific method to bear on the hidden secrets of the body. As Wendy Moore says in her excellent biography of the father of modern surgery, he was driven to tireless curiosity and a compulsion to improve the surgery he had witnessed in hospitals. He came to be admired by patients and medical students, but his blunt manners, coarse speech, and his disdain for fashion won him few friends among fellow surgeons. Born in 1728 at Long Calderwood near East Kilbreed, the boy known to friends as Jack detested both lessons and books with a vengeance. He left school at 13. Later, he would also drop out of Oxford after just two months. He had no time for academia, saying he totally rejected books and preferred to read the volume of the animal body. Hunter did his first human dissection aged 20 at his brother William's anatomy school in Covent Garden, London's red light district. The school was revolutionary for England. It promised hands-on anatomy, a corpse for every student. Erasmus Darwin and Adam Smith were among the worthies who attended William's lectures. He was an eloquent and inspirational lecturer, unlike his brother who always hated giving lectures. A friend said Jack had difficulty communicating what he knew, which was perhaps unsurprising given that he insisted on 30 drops of laudanum beforehand. One of his lectures was so scantily attended that he asked for a skeleton to be brought in so that he could begin with the customary, gentlemen. What Jack excelled at, however, was cutting up bodies. His skills soon exceeded those of his genteel and delicate brother, who preferred not to get his hands dirty. He spent 12 years at his brother's school, dissecting more than 2,000 bodies to supply William with preparations of preserved body parts as proofs of his theories. He had a tireless, erratic, ever-inquiring mind. Dissection was a complete sensory experience for him. As well as the appalling stench and the need for detailed observation, Hunter even noted the taste of bodies. Gastric juices were a little saltish or brackish, and semen was a mawkish kind of substance, but when held some time in the mouth, it produces a warmth similar to spices. No one knew more about the human body than John Hunter. By the 1780s, he was the leading anatomist in Europe and an influential figure in Georgian high society. He had married a beautiful blue-stocking poet, Anne Holm, and was surgeon extraordinary to King George III. During the day, the carriages of his wealthy patients blocked Leicester Square, where he lived with his family. In the evening, while Anne entertained London's literati, literary debates were decidedly not his idea of fun, the resurrectionists, or sack-em-up men, would deliver corpses from London cemeteries to his back door. He was, as Moore says, the Jekyll and Hyde of the Georgian period. At his country house in the tranquil village of Earl's Court, Hunter kept an exotic menagerie. Zebras and mountain goats grazed on the front lawn, prompting some to say he was the model for Dr. Doolittle. Hunter would sometimes be seen driving a carriage containing fresh supplies of fruit and vegetables from Earl's Court to his Leicester Square townhouse, pulled by three Asian buffaloes. On the return journey, it would carry a gory cargo of dissected corpses. At Earl's Court, he conducted experiments on animals of which Dr. Moreau would have been proud. 
the squealing of pigs and dogs vivisected in the name of science competed with the roar of his lions. Once, he successfully grafted a cockerel's testicle into the belly of a hen. He died on October 16, 1793, after yet another heated argument with the outdated surgeons at St. George's Hospital. He left huge debts, having spent all his money building up his unique anatomical collection. Opened to the public in 1788 at his Leicester Square home, the 14,000 items collected over 40 years, including Burley's immense tumor, demonstrated the interrelatedness of all life on Earth. It also proved the originality of Hunter's thinking. Seventy years before Darwin's On the Origin of Species, monkey and human skulls were placed together in a series, and he told visitors that our first parents, Adam and Eve, were indisputably black. He had hoped the nation would buy his collection, but William Pitt the Younger, at war with France, exclaimed, What? Buy preparations? Why, I have not got money enough to purchase gunpowder. Hunter's wife and children were left with nothing, but his brother-in-law seized his unpublished works and plagiarized them ruthlessly to carve out a career for himself as a surgeon. The man whom Hunter had taught the art of anatomy then burnt his priceless research notes. Definitely not for the squeamish, Moore's visceral portrait of this complex and brilliant man offers a wonderful insight into sickness, suffering, and surgery in the 18th century. If the name Wendy Moore sounds familiar to you, that's because for episode 32, uh, I covered another of her books, Wedlock, the true story of the disastrous marriage and remarkable divorce of Mary Eleanor Bowes, Countess of Strathmore. She's a very gifted author and historian, and I highly recommend her work. One last excerpt before I leave you to think about bodies and bodies of work. This is from the Pulitzer Prize winning Under The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. And I'll give you a heads up, uh, this particular excerpt is just a tiny fragment of the story, um, which deals mostly with an actual Underground Railroad during the Civil War. It is beautiful and heartbreaking, and the portrait of humanity is just something I've rarely seen in books that I've read. Um, I, I just thought it was beautifully executed, and I hope you will agree if you get a chance to read it. It's very well done. So, from The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. The anatomy house of the Proctor Medical School was three blocks away from the main building, second from last on the dead-end street. The school wasn't as discriminating as the better-known medical colleges in Boston. The press of acceptances necessitated an expansion. Aloysius Stevens worked nights to satisfy the terms of his fellowship. In exchange for tuition relief and a place to work, the late-night shift was quiet and conducive to study, the school got someone to admit the body snatcher. Carpenter usually delivered just before dawn, before the neighborhood browsed, but tonight he called it midnight. Stevens blew out the lamp in the dissection room and ran up the stairs. He almost forgot his muffler, then remembered how cold it had been last time, when Autumn crept in to remind them of the bitter season to come. 
It rained that morning and he hoped it wouldn't be too muddy. He had one pair of brogues and the soles were in a miserable state. Carpenter and his man Cobb waited in the driver's seat. Stephen settled in the cart with the tools. He slid down until they got a healthy distance away, in case any of the faculty or students were about. It was late, but a bone expert from Chicago had presented that night, and they might still be carousing in the local saloons. Stevens was disappointed about missing the man's talk. His fellowship often prevented his attendance at guest lectures, but the money would remove some of the sting. Most of the other students came from well-off Massachusetts families, spared worries over rent or food. When the cart passed McGinty's and he heard the laughter inside, Stevens pulled his hat down. Cobb leaned around. Concord tonight, he said, and offered his flask. As a matter of policy, Stevens declined when Cobb shared his liquor. Though still in his studies, he was certain of various diagnoses he'd made about the state of the man's health. But the wind was brisk and mean, and they had hours in the dark and mud before the return to the anatomy house. Stevens took a long pull and choked on fire. What is this? One of my cousin's concoctions. Too strong for your taste? He and Carpenter chortled. More likely, he had collected last night's dregs at the saloon. Stevens took the prank in good cheer. Cobb had warmed to Stevens over the months. He could imagine the man's complaints when Carpenter suggested that he stand in whenever one of their gang was too besotted or incarcerated or otherwise unavailable for their nocturnal missions. Who's to say? This fancy rich boy could keep his tongue. Stevens was not rich and was fancy only in his aspirations. The city had started hanging grave robbers lately, which was ironic or fitting, depending on one's perspective, as the bodies of the hanged were given to medical schools for dissection. Don't mind the gallows, Cobb had told Stevens. It's quick enough, the people are the thing. It should be a private viewing, if you ask me. Watching a man shit his guts is indecent. Digging up graves had fastened the bonds of friendship. Now, when Cobb called him doctor, it was with respect and not derision. You're not like that other sort, Cobb told him one night when they carried a cadaver through the back door. You're a wee shady. That he was. It helped to be a wee with disreputable when you were a young surgeon, especially when it came to materials for post-mortem dissection. There had been a body shortage ever since the study of anatomy came into its own. The law, the jail, and the judge provided only so many dead murderers and prostitutes. Yes, persons afflicted with rare diseases and curious deformities sold their bodies for study after their demise, and some doctors donated their cadavers in the spirit of scientific inquiry, but their numbers scarcely met the demand. The body game was fierce, for buyers and sellers alike. Rich medical schools outbid the less fortunate ones. Body snatchers charged for the body, then added a retainer, then a delivery fee. They raised prices at the start of the teaching period when demand was high, only to offer bargains at the end of the term when there was no longer a need for a specimen. Morbid paradoxes confronted Stevens daily. His profession worked to extend life while secretly hoping for an increase in the deceased. A malpractice suit called you before the judge for want of a skill but get caught with an ill-gotten cadaver and the judge punished you for trying to obtain that skill. Proctor made its students pay for their own pathological specimens. Stevens' first anatomy course required two complete dissections. 
how was he supposed to pay for that? Back home in Maine, he'd been spoiled by his mother's cooking. The women on her side were gifted. Here in the city, tuition, books, lectures, and rent had him subsisting on crusts for days on end. When Carpenter invited Stevens to work for him, he did not hesitate. His appearance scared Stevens, that first delivery months before. The grave robber was an Irish giant, imposing in frame, uncouth in manner and speech, and carried with him the reek of damp earth. Carpenter and his wife had six children. When two of them passed from yellow fever, he sold them for anatomical study. Or, so it was said. Stevens was so, was too scared to ask for refutation. When trafficking in cadavers, it helped to be immune to sentimentality. He wouldn't be the first body snatcher to open a grave to find the face of a long-lost cousin or a dear friend. Carpenter recruited his gang at the saloon Rowdy's All. They slept the day, drank well into the evening, then set off for their pastime. The hours are not great, but suit a certain character. Criminal, criminal character incorrigible by any measure. It was a low enterprise. Raiding cemeteries was the least of it. The competition was a pack of rabid animals. Leave a prospect too late in the evening and you were liable to, dis to discover someone else had pilfered the body first. Carpenter reported his competition's clients to the police, broke into dissection rooms to mutilate their deliveries. Brawls erupted when rival gangs converged on the same pauper's field. They smashed one another's faces among the tombstones. It was raucous, Carpenter always said when he finished one of his stories, grinning through his mossy teeth. In his glory days, Carpenter elevated the ploys and chickenery of his trade to a devilish art. He brought rocks and wheelbarrows for undertakers to bury and carried away the deceased. An actor taught his nieces and nephews to cry on demand, the craft of bereavement. Then they made the rounds of the morgue, claiming bodies as long-lost relatives, although Carpenter was not above simply stealing bodies from the coroner when he had to. On more than one occasion, Carpenter sold a cadaver to an anatomical school, reported the body to, his, to the police, and then had his wife, dressed in mourning clothes, claim it as her son. Whereupon, Carpenter sold the body again to another school. It saved the county the expense of burial. No one looked too closely. Eventually, the body trade grew so reckless that relatives took to holding graveside vigils, lest their loved ones disappear in the night. Suddenly, every missing child was perceived to have been a victim of foul play, snatched, dispatched, and then sold for dissection. The newspapers took up the cause in outraged editorials. The law stepped in. In this new climate, most body snatchers extended their territory, riffling the graves of distant cemeteries to space out their raids. On the outskirts of Concord, they stopped at the small wooden gate and waited for the custodian's signal. The man waved his lantern back and forth and Carpenter drove the cart inside the cemetery. Cobb paid the man's fee and he directed them to this night's bounty, two large, two medium, and three infants. The rain had softened the earth. They'd be done in three hours. After they refilled the graves, it would be as if they were never there. Your surgeon's knife? Carpenter handed Stevens a spade. He'd be a medical student again in the morning. Tonight, he was a resurrection man. Body Snatcher was an accurate name. Resurrection man was a bit florid, but it held a truth. He gave these people a second chance to contribute. One denied them in their previous life. 
And if you could make a study of the dead, Stevens thought from time to time, you could make a study of the living and make them testify as no cadaver could. He rubbed his hands to stir the blood and started to dig. I have one more recommendation for you before I let you go, which is by James Blake Bailey, and it's called The Diary of a Resurrectionists, of a, re- of a Resurrectionist, not plural, and it is a first-hand account of a resurrection man in 1811 and 1812. I believe he was in London. It is free on Amazon Kindle, and I think you can also find it on Project Gutenberg. That's it for today. Thank you for listening, as always. If you liked it, tell a friend. If you didn't, tell an enemy. And we will talk again soon.